0: Well, let's see. Realizing we didn't test these lapel mics beforehand, so it's, you know, you never know what's going to happen. We like to live on the edge here. All right. Uh, kids, you are welcome to go with Pastor Debbie um, out to the old pine tree. I'm going to make it a thing. I'm going <laughs> to... The old pine tree will become a part of the Cordova lore here. Um, all right, well, we are in the second to last book of the Old Testament. All right, so if you're like, we're going we're to be preaching here through Zechariah, and if you're like, you know, where in the Hecariah is Zechariah? Um, you go to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, back up, not Malachi. Back up one more to Zechariah, okay? And we're covering two visions today, um, two separate visions. I'll explain that in a moment. But our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 4, verses 26 to 34, okay. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows, and he knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which, when sown in the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. All right. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um. Well, our visions today from Zechariah, there are eight night visions. Um, Zechariah is a prophet from about 500, 520, 515 B.C., okay? So B.C. years work backwards, right, because they're coming up to Christ. So the big, the big to-do in Jerusalem happens in 587, 70-ish years later, Zechariah and some of those folk have returned from Babylon, and he is a prophet to that community of people. Um, The visions are, there's eight of them, and what we're going to be doing is we're going to be working our way into the middle. So today, I'm preaching the first and the last vision. Next week, it will be the second and the second to last, or the second and the seventh, and then the third, and and we're going to get down to the center, okay? So that's kind of just so you're aware what is going on with this arrangement. That's sort of how we're going. We are coming in to the center. And you heard in both of these visions, Zechariah, he actually goes to sleep. In the translation that Becky was reading, it says, was it February 15th? Um, you know, So that's not in the Hebrew, right? <laughs> the Hebrew is, um, let me see here, so the 24th day of the 11th month. But it's, it's three months later than what we we're talking about last week, okay? So it went back from November to February. And Zechariah talks about these horses, the sort of controlling image for me anyway, is these horses that go out and that cover all of the earth. There's four different types of horses in in both of these visions. And what it reminds me of is when I was a freshman in high school, how old was I? 14, something like that. 14 years old, 9-11 happened. September we were living in Lancaster California which is out in the Antelope Valley northeast corner of LA County big Air Force bases out there Edwards Air Force Base and when 9/11 happened um, it, it felt like I you know I lived there until we moved just like a month later we moved up to Northern California so um, but I, I lived there through all of elementary and middle school and it felt like there was like this badge of honor of like how high we were on like North Korea's nuke list or something because we had this big air force base like well we're going to be you know the eighth people in the nation who are gone it's just a weird thing that you get (laughs) growing up in that area you're somehow proud of that but when 9-11 happened um there were i mean f-16s scrambling like you heard there was activity in the sky b-2s and we kind of saw it all taking place over the next couple weeks and they would just be they would just be cruising around, patrolling, right? <laughs> these, these engines of war, just sort of up there in the sky, watching, making sure everything was okay. And I imagine, uh, my mom said later that she was comforted by those sounds. She was comforted by the fact that you, know, you could, she could actively see and hear our military in the act of protecting us or of setting up some sort of barrier. Um, And I've reflected on that a a little bit um, over the course of my life. And it was, I guess it was comforting for me. Um, I imagine it wasn't so comforting for everybody. You know, the sound of a fighter jet um, can be comforting depending on which side of the missile you're on, right? The hot end or the pointy end. Um, The sound of a helicopter coming, coming through can be, either like hooray, I'm about to get rescued or incredibly scary and terrifying. The sound of a police siren can mean different things based on your situation and your place in life and in society and in the culture. right These things are, are sort of potent symbols. they mean something, but they mean either good or bad. right They usually don't mean it's just neutral, right? They mean either extreme good or extreme bad. And I think we often struggle when it comes to thinking about God's judgment because we put it in the wrong context. When we hear God's judgment, we tend to think that God's judgment is either far off in the future, right? It's it's like I mean, yeah, God's going to judge the earth, but he's going to judge the earth in like 250 or 2,000 or 2 million years. I don't know. It's just like some way off there. It's not actually going to impact my life. His judgment is not actually going to break into my life. It's like climate change or something. It's like, yeah, sure, fine. But I mean, really, I'm going to just keep doing whatever I'm doing because if it happens, it's going to be so far away. (laughs) Or we think of God's judgment is so small and specific that it never actually ripples out into anything. So God comes and maybe judges me for the way I've been living, but what it ultimately means is that I didn't get that parking space I really wanted, and I'm just sorry, God, your judgment has broken into my world because it's this, just this really tiny, small thing that has sort of slowly shifted a little bit of my life, but there's no real ripples, So God's judgment is either way out there or so close in here. And Zechariah is convinced that God's judgment is absolutely real and absolutely coming to break into everyone's life. So we saw last week, it is absolutely real in the life of Israel. They have been, they've lived life their own way. Like the prodigal son, they went off into a far country, they did whatever they wanted with all of the leeway that God gave them, and it landed them in the pig slop. And God has been gracious to bring them back, to allow them to come back. He says, return to me, and I will return to you. God has been loving and open to do that. But, Zechariah reminds them, that doesn't mean you get to just live your life without confession. That doesn't mean that because God has allowed you to return, that you get to just live your life however you like now. Israel was learning to see as they came back into the land, learning to see the world with God's eyes. Learning to see it the way that their Lord saw it. What they were learning to see... Is that judgment is not just punishment. Judgment is a promise. The judgment that breaks into our life is not just punishment. It's not the the lashing out of an angry dad or an upset big brother. It's a promise. It's actually about a promise about the way that things are. Zechariah has this vision of horses. First and the last both have horses in them. In the first one, again, it's, it seems like he's asleep. If you kind of read it, it, calls them visions rather than dreams, but it happens at night. And so you're kind of like, well, what's going on here? Um, but he's essentially asleep on his bed. God gives him this vision of a man standing among the myrtles. And there's an angel who's describing things to him. Let's see if I can go to, let's see here. Will that next slide go? There we go. All, All right. right. So this is like an old I like these old drawings, um, just because sometimes you get really crazy details in them. But uh, <laughs> so in this one, you got Zechariah, and this angel is like around him, you see. And then there's this dude about ready to get on the red horse. Um, those little plants on the bottom there are all are all myrtle trees, apparently. Okay, so you got these horses gathered up, and he talks to him, and, and the man says that it, it's. He's going to send, these horses are going to be sent out and they're going to patrol over the earth, right? They're going to go back and forth across the earth. And they bring news back. They bring news back to the Lord. If We look down, um, the, the horses go out, they come back. Okay, and look at what the Lord wants to say in verse... Uh, verse 13 and 14. The Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Gracious and comforting words. See, now most of us when we saw horses, just like when we see F-16s and we see, you know, Black Hawk helicopters and we hear sirens, those those kind of sounds or those images can be really sort of powerful images that disturb us, and the same would have been true with the horses it was just 70 years before that the horses of Babylon that crested the hill and came up to Jerusalem and what did those horses bring with them utter and complete destruction tearing down the walls of Babylon tearing down the temple or the walls of Jerusalem tearing down the temple carrying off all of the precious and holy things inside the temple they totally and completely laid siege to the city and destroyed it in the most awful and terrible way that you can imagine and then just A year or just even months before Zechariah is prophesying, they've come back from the land, they've started to rebuild the temple, and then you can go read this in the book of Ezra, here come the horses of Babylon. And what do they bring with them this time? They bring news that this new king, Darius, has revoked his permission. He's changed the zoning code so they can no longer build the temple. They can no longer do what God has asked them to do. So these Babylonian horses are this sign of terror. They're this sign of fear. But what does Zechariah see in his vision? Babylon's not the only one with horses. Babylon is not the only king with power. Darius is not the only one who sends out his horses across the world. What he sees is that the Lord has horses and that the Lord is sending out those horses to patrol, finding out what's going on, that even kings and presidents have a boss. Even kings and presidents are subject to somebody, that even landlords and creditors and your boss and CEOs and senators are subject to some authority, are subject to some power. And the good news of this judgment is that you can be sure that anywhere there is an abuse of power, anywhere there is an abuse of somebody who is weaker, God sees it. And it does not ultimately go forgotten. It doesn't go Unremembered. I mean, how many of us have had that exact same cry? How long, oh Lord? How long are you going to let this go on? How long are you going to let this person treat me like this? How long are you going to let this group of people be beaten down? How long are you going to let entire countries and populations suffer because of the decisions of somebody way up at the top who wanted to make a couple million more? How long? And Zechariah wants us to see that the Lord has horses too. That the Lord has horses too and he's sending them out to march. The Lord's authority extends over all peoples and all kingdoms and all history and dominions, both spiritual and temporal. That means... A couple things there's two words for rest in these two visions so um uh, look at look at verse 11 it says they answered the angel of the lord who was these are the the horses coming back um they answered the angel of the lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said we have patrolled the earth and behold all the earth remains at rest now is rest a good thing or a bad thing it should be good (laughs) right? It should be good. But sometimes the events of history can settle in such a way that they actually kind of settle wrong. And somebody is sort of in power and authority for far too long. Sometimes things seem stable, but what is stable is not good. Sometimes things settle in such a way that they're not actually, I don't even want to use the word equal, but they don't declare the goodness and the glory of God. And so that's the type of rest that is actually described in verse chapter 1, verse 11, because it's right after that that they're going to cry out, how long? How long? But in chapter 6, verse 8, at the end of this last vision, so this is verse 7 and 8, when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. So this second type of rest, and it gets a little muddled in the English, they're actually different words for rest, but this second type of rest tells us that God's judgment has put everything at peace the way it should be. So we've got two types of rest. The one is where things are stable but still wrong okay? Stable but still wrong. The second is the rest where that can only happen when God's new order comes to be. It can only happen when God's presence puts everything to right. It can only happen when God lives among His people, when God is making His new creation, okay? And so as we kind of look at these two visions of horses going out and going out and looking around and seeing what's going on and reporting back it might seem like things are not okay <laughs> like god's horses go out and patrol and god acts to comfort zion you might think that these horses are bad news for israel but what we discover. what we discover is that judgment here, judgment in Zechariah, judgment for Israel, God working justice in the world may seem like bad news at first, but judgment is actually a promise to us that as bad as we are, that God will yet be greater. That no matter how great our sin, that God will make a way through. Judgment is a promise that as long as we will be committed in some measure, even if it's just the size of a mustard seed, that we will be bound to the Lord and that God will ultimately pull us through that judgment. The Israel that Zechariah is talking about only two generations ago, God is like, I am going to wipe them off the map. And you would have thought that they would have just been destroyed into nothing. But God finds a way to bring this little faithful remnant through, and he brings up people like Ezekiel. He brings up people like Haggai and Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah, just these couple little people who are willing to fight the fight, who are willing to do the hard thing, who are willing to say, Lord, you know what? I hated it, but we deserved that. We deserved those 70 years. And so we're going to be faithful in the midst of difficulty. We're going to try to figure out a way to push through this hard time because we know that in your judgment is a promise of your redemption. We know that as things seem to fall apart around us, there's actually this promise that you're going to pull us through. Judgment's a promise that as bad as we have been, God is going to be yet greater. And so here's what I'm struggling with today. <laughs> I don't know if I'm just thinking about it for myself. I don't know if I'm thinking about it for other friends or what. Um, but I had the, kind of this question in my mind this week, and it's, it's a question I'm always wrestling with. It's just, what is happening with our kids? <laughs> What's happening with kids in the church and sort of and, and in particular, like, in church culture, right? Not just, like, Cordova Church in the Nazarene, but, like, broader in sort of the Christian culture. What's going on with young people? We had a system. My parents probably grew up at, like, the beginning of it, and I grew up in, like, the very, very tail end of it. Somewhere in, like, the 60s and 70s it began, and then came up, I, I, it died. It died when the Internet came around, like, honestly. But I think the 90s, the 2000s, this sort of Christian culture sort of, petered out but we had this system where you could be a good christian and you could you could get born and dedicated in the church and shuffled off to the nursery and then you'd go to christian school go to christian preschool and then you'd go to christian kindergarten you'd be in christian school all the way through and then after you graduated christian school that was great we have a college for you right and these colleges are awesome because there's all these kinds of people who Yeah, they want to learn, but they really just want to get married, right? So they're all there in these Christian colleges, like trying desperately to get married to each other. So we could get you from the nursery all the way to your nuptials (laughs) without ever having to meaningfully interact with somebody who did not know the Lord. Without ever having to really deeply have legitimate friendships, the kind of friendships that bring you pain when you see somebody make bad decisions with people who did not know the Lord. And the problem with that is not just what it did to us, but it created this sense of like, well, anybody who's sort of out there, they just just make the choice. Like, just join, rejoin the culture. Like, listen to DC Talk. You know, like, we got Christian rap. We got Christian rock. Why do you got to go do all of that stuff? Like, we have Christian T-shirts, right? There was never a Christian car, but if there was, I'm sure it would have been in my driveway. Right? The problem... Oh, yeah, right? All the apostles were in one accord? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) The the, the big fault there, thank you, Tom, you saved me, that's good. Um, The big fault there is not that we created a Christian culture, right? Christian culture is going to come up. The big fault was that we prioritized that culture over a living Christian faith. We said it's better for you to be a part in this like little safe, walled-off world where you can watch VeggieTales instead of Ninja Turtles, right? <laughs> we said it's better for you to be in this safe space than it is for you to have a dangerously real encounter with the Lord. And the result was that a lot of people connected to the culture and not to Jesus. A lot of people connected to... This is what it looks like to live around people who are like me and who also like me. And so we created these churches that were largely homogenous, meaning the same. <laughs> right? We wanted people who were the same essential social station as us. They made about the same amount of money. They worked in kind of the same jobs, more or less the same age. They liked the same music they wanted to worship at the same time because those 10.30 people are weird, but the 11 o'clock people, I'm all for them, right? We created these homogenous cultures in our churches and the way that that's played out now after this whole thing has just crumbled and died, like the internet just killed this. What happens now is that words like evangelical are strictly a political designation. That's just about how you vote. To be an evangelical, It's just about your voting habits and patterns. We had all these kinds of things that are just our identities. And watch this. we, We see even our kids not transitioning into an adult faith. We see churches that are fragile. Interesting thing about the pandemic, small churches like this... okay. Normative-sized churches. That's the word I'm supposed to use. Normative-sized churches. Actually, did fine. Okay? Not great, but fine. Big, mega-churches that rely on that culture really struggled during this pandemic. Right? Just interesting (laughs) to me. Our kids have largely not transitioned into adult faith. Churches are hurting and, and often fragile. The sort of ecosystem of... Christian colleges is really struggling because those Christian colleges are trying to make it in a competitive educational market and theology degrees don't sell. Trust me, right? <laughs> they don't sell in the competitive market. And so I kind of look at all of this and again, this is by this is no indictment on any one, you know, family or parent or anything. This is a broad cultural issue that we're all sort of suffering with dealing with. But as we look at all of that, I kind of want to know, it's like the horses of judgment are marching on the church of the United States. The horses of judgment are marching across this sort of like Christian landscape, and they've judged the culture. And they will continue to judge the culture that we can't or haven't created young people able and willing to encounter the world and stand up in the face of it. I wonder how far that judgment's gonna go. That when we, the church, when we want power over purpose, when we want representation in downtown and in Washington, we want Christian politicians rather than a living sense of the living God who has set our lives on fire so that we can be a part of him transforming the world in the name of Jesus Christ. we've traded that, the horses are gonna march. Right? The horses of judgment are going to march on us. Here's the good news. Zechariah 1.15 I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Here's the good news. The horses will march, but they won't march forever. And so if God takes our church... <laughs> And to some extent, our church gets it gets harder and harder and harder to be a Christian. Things shrink and they get more difficult, and it's just it's just tougher over the next 10 or 20 or 30 or I don't know, 70 years. There will come a point where the culture will overreach. There will come a point where it will go from judgment to persecution. Where all of a sudden the culture says, Oh, we've got the church on the ropes. And they keep going and going and going, just like Babylon. God wanted to use Babylon to punish and to judge Israel, but Babylon kept on going. They kept on pushing them down. They kept grinding their face into the dirt until all of a sudden the the horses are no longer marching against Israel. Now the horses are marching against Babylon. And it's going to be the same thing, where the horses are no longer just marching against the church, but now they begin to march against the culture. You see how that that balance shifts? Judgment is a promise that as bad as we may have been, God is going to be yet greater. The culture will overextend itself, and chapter 6 tells us when it does, the culture will feel it. But in the meantime, what should we do? In the meantime, how do we live? Do we just build higher walls? Do we get even more serious and more turned in on each other? And I don't think that's the answer. I think in the meantime, what we need to do is to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness, Because here's the thing, your kids and your grandkids and your nieces and your nephews and all of the younger people, and also you, we need church. We need the church. But we don't need the church to believe in Jesus for us. We need the church to introduce us to that living, burning faith. There was a study, uh, a college professor who over 20, 30 years did surveys with kids in his classes, and he, he took all of these and put them together. I mean, this is like you know, hundreds, thousands of kids. And what he found is that the most influential person in their life for those that kept the faith was not their parents. It was one of their parents' peers. It was one of their parents' friends. It was a sort of auntie or an uncle or a godfather or a godmother. It was one of those kinds of figures who was able to say, this faith is it. Those were the influential people. And so here's my question. Have you introduced your kids, have you introduced your grandkids to that person? To that auntie, that uncle who's going to be that living source of faith for this young person that you love? Or have you been that person for somebody else's kid, grandkid, nephew, niece, whatever it is? Are you the person that somebody else can adopt as this like living, burning auntie, uncle who they just are able to look at you and say, man, that is the life of faith that I want. That is the life of faith that I need because that's a life that is transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. That's a life that is impossible if Jesus did not die and was not raised again from the dead. Have you been that person? All right. (laughs) I'm going to be done here. But here's what I want to say. Here's my real hope. Because Zechariah, we're going to go on and read in chapter 7, he's going to tell them what I told you last week, right? That we need to be a people... With justice, with mercy, with concern for the oppressed, who don't devise evil in our hearts. And I'm going to keep, I'm going to hit that every single week, so just expect it. (laughs) Justice, mercy, concern for the oppressed, devising good in our hearts, seeking ways to be like Christ. But in order to become that, we have to be convinced that we as Christians have answers to the world's questions. We need we need a confident Christianity. Here's, here's what I would love to see. Rather than, a, rather than a Christianity that says, let's build a little culture over here that's sort of separate and never actually encounters problems, right? Rather than that, what if we had a Christianity that was like, I want to know what those questions are because I'm convinced that any good question you have, God has an answer to. Anything you're wrestling with, the Lord can handle. Any pain you have, I promise it shows up in the Psalms. Anything that, that burdens you and that drives you away from the church, that drives you away from Christ, somebody has dealt with it before. But in order to do that, we the church, we've got to open up our minds. We've got to open up our eyes. And rather than just seeking to be encouraged for ourselves, say, what are these questions that other people are reading or are struggling with? Are we paying attention to the questions the culture's asking about sexuality? They're not even asking the questions anymore. They know the answers, but they totally passed us by. And we've just acted like we can wave signs in the air. And that's going to be enough. And that is not who Christ has called us to be. That is not who Jesus has asked us to be. Are we willing to engage this crisis of meaning that our culture is is suffering under? People who have no meaningful relationships outside of a screen and just deeply need human connections deeply, because we are made for that communion. And in that lack of meaning, suicide and depression and anxiety and all kinds of mental illness are just skyrocketing. It's not just the pandemic, it was there way before. And if we aren't the kind of people who don't see that and have our hearts break over that, we have not heard the call of Jesus Christ. We have not heard the call of Jesus Christ to say, look, wherever there is oppression, wherever there is brokenness, that's where I am. That's where I am. I hope you can find a way to move into some of that space. I hope you can find a way to trust that God's judgment is a promise to you and to all of the world that no matter how bad you have been, God will yet be greater. God will pull us, God will pull them through. Pastor Cody's going to come up and he's going to lead us in communion here. And there is a line in the liturgy that we use that says, let me just read it. I me get it wrong. This is what it says. Make them, talking about the gifts here, the bread and the cup, make them by the power of your spirit to be for us the body and blood of Christ that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. That we may be for the world. That when we eat this bread and drink this cup, what we are praying is that God would make us, the church, a people willing to be broken and poured out. Of people willing to be like Jesus. Even to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So that God can raise us from the dead. That we would know him and all of his suffering. So that we might also know the power of his resurrection. Let's pray. Lord God, we want you. We want to be with you. We want to be in you. We want to be in Christ. And so if it's judgment that gets us there, Lord, it sounds strange, but we pray that you would judge us and that we would be open to that judgment because we know that to judgment is not because you are vicious, it's not because you're mean, it's not because you hate us, but it's because you are promising to us that you will yet be greater than all of the sin, than all of the evil, than all the bad that we had ever been. Lord, as we come to the table this morning, may we come with broken hearts expectant for the work that you're going to do in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.